0: First question is, um, what is the role of genetics in obesity? Is someone destined to be overweight or obese if there's a strong family history?
1: So genetics plays a huge role in everything in our life, as you know, right? Whether it's, skin, whether it's your hair color, eye color, how long you're going to live getting all these illnesses. Obesity is no different. Uh, and it comes from multiple studies of uh, dizygotic twins and monozygotic twins, adoption studies, animal studies, and so forth. Um, in general, so, so it has a large role, and that's why we take a family history. Our other, fo- other people in your family uh, uh, deal with obesity or weight gain, and that's where you get that genetics. Overall, if you look at the heterogeneous population, we think that genetics contributes about 35 to 40, 45 percent of, of the BMI. Now, it's not 50 percent in the population, so it's still behavior, environment, and so on. But if you get two monocyte, two twins, identical twins, right, and they both have obesity, it's more than 45 percent. But in general, uh, that's why we take a family history, and that then uh, increases the likelihood that you are going to gain weight, which means you really don't want to focus on that individual carefully, and potentially use more aggressive treatments like or pharmacotherapy. Or pharmacotherapy.
0: All right. So I'll, I'll jump quickly to what has to be the most asked question concerning So There's multiple questions here, but first is, Three months, six months, how do we get around that? Uh, we're told that it's indicated for
1: only six months of care. All right. So, Phentermine is the oldest, it, it's the um, it's the oldest drug available, It's approved in 1959 at a time that if you look at the package insert, it it's approved for exogenous obesity, a term we don't use anymore, <laughs> for short-term use, that's how obesity was thought. And it's never gone in for relabeling because there's no money in kind of doing the trial again. So it's an old label from 1959. So if you're going to follow the package insert, you would use it for short-term treatment only, probably a few weeks to a few months, and then stop it. I could tell you if we we now view obesity as a chronic relapsing disease, we don't think of using medication in the same way. So all of us use phentermine long-term. Beyond the package insert, like we do many drugs, we use off-label, if you will, mm-hmm. we use phentermine long-term because that's how we treat a chronic disease. And I don't know about Florida. Maybe you can tell me or someone else. Some states regulate the usage of phentermine to short-term use only because they go by the package insert uh, in which you have to go off it and it takes a while to go back on it. I don't know how to, how to get around that if that's your, if that's your state law. I live in Illinois. We don't have that, so I'm not restricted by that. Ohio, which is next to me or near me, does have that law. Now, again, I don't know what floor is, um, But if you don't have that restriction as a state regulation, we use it long-term. All of us do because it's a chronic relapsing disease. I'm in Massachusetts,
0: and so I just stop it for a month. I bring the patient back and say, oh, they've gained weight or they're feeling worse, and I restart it for another six months. It's a little game I play okay. with the state of the commonwealth of Massachusetts. Now I've said that on the record. Um, should um, you do any, any pre-evaluation if you're going to place someone on a stimulant like ventramine? Do they need a stress test? Do they need a cardiogram?
1: Yeah. So there's absolutely no uh, uh, required screening uh, indications or criteria in terms of needing to do an EKG or stress test. What you do need to do is to take a very good history like you all do every single day. So if someone has normal blood pressure, has no cardiac symptoms, don't suggest any cardiac disease, I don't go any further. If I suspect any risk, uh, it's very reasonable to get an EKG or if you really suspect they're at at risk of of coronary disease, do a stress test. But But I do not do that routinely at all. The contraindications would be as you would expect. Uh, uh untreated hypertension, arrhythmia, recent MI, recent stroke, someone has a lot of anxiety, someone has palpitations, right? Someone has agitation, uh, you would not use it. But you also have to think about its side effects, common side effects, constipation, dry mouth. So if someone's battling constipation, I'm not sure phenamine is the best medication to put them on because it's probably going to make it worse. So it's really taking a good history knowing what the side effect profile of the drug is and then using your, you know, kind of your acumen as a physician mm-hmm. or a clinician.
0: Um, any risk of, uh, any potential risk for abuse or diversion with phentermine I,
1: I don't think phentermine has any street value at all. I mean, I, I don't know anyone who's on the streets selling mm-hmm. fentramine, mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though it's, not, it's an amphetamine derivative. And wh- why it was kind of a breakthrough drug in 1959 is it reduced the, ad- addictive potential of being an amphetamine by making it a derivative which affects mostly appetite. So, any one of you who use phentamine with a patient, they will typically say, you know, the first few days it felt like I had too much coffee. I felt like cleaning the house a lot, you know, I felt very productive, and then over time that really went away and what I was left with is I'm really not as hungry. So that whole stimulant effect of an amphetamine backbone really goes away pretty quickly. Now, because it is an amphetamine, however, we don't go up and up and up on the dose because like that's called tachyphylaxis, right? You get used to the, the high of it and people on the street have to take higher and higher dose of amphetamine. Phentermine we don't do that, right? We have fixed doses and we don't go any higher and we now know that we think that the lower the dose is probably better than the higher dose. We also know from the phentermine to a combination that that combination works better than phentermine alone, that's why that particular drug was FDA approved. Uh,
0: one last question in this realm concerning binge eating disorder, um, Vivinace. Uh, thoughts about should we be using it? Are we not making that diagnosis and applying therapeutic intervention uh,
1: more appropriately? So when you see someone who, um, who has binge eating, di- it, it kind of comes down to what is the goal of therapy and what is the patient's goal? If the patient comes in with just binge eating disorder and it's that disturbed eating you want to control, you're likely to go- want to use therapy directed towards binge eating. Cognitive behavioral therapy, it could be a residential program, uh, it, could be, it could be an SSRI which has been helpful, even topiramate's been used off label for that. <coughs> um, but treating the binge eating has not been shown to cause weight loss, interestingly. There's, it's not really robust to weight loss. But if someone has binge eating disorder, but really obesity is the key thing because of the comorbidities, you can kind of tackle both of them together by using an anti-obesity medication because by reducing appetite, they don't have the thoughts and the compulsivity to eat as much as they did. May not take care of the psychological background, what caused the binge eating, but the actual behavior of binging seems to be suppressed, but they still may need therapy to deal with what was the trigger of binge eating to Mm -hmm. begin with.
0: Okay, um, we'll come back to medicines in a few minutes because there's so many questions on meds. Um, but a few questions on: What do you recommend? Uh, you talked a little bit about reducing 500 to 750 calories a day. Uh, can you give any give us your thoughts on on a keto diet, the whole 30, and
1: right. um,
0: intermittent fasting? Right. That'll take care of about seven questions right
1: there. Yeah, no, I bet. So um, I'll I'll, I'll, uh, start with some general statements and then maybe give you a a few more details. The general statements, which are important to know, just evidence-based stuff, is that uh, intermittent fasting has just a a large amount of uh, studies that are are being published uh, on it because it's just a fascinating concept. Uh, the bottom line is that all of the randomized trials, you take half the group, put them on intermittent fasting, the other group on a regular controlled diet, there is no difference in outcome. You lose about the same amount of body weight, and the clinical outcome is not that different. So it's comparable to kind of a calorie-controlled diet. Really? Yeah. Wow. It, it, it had, all the studies have been done, not the short term, right? right? Some of them are weeks, some of them are months. Right. But the outcome is about the same. Uh, And a few facts about intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting, if someone says they want to do that, you want to clarify what they're talking about. The most common intermittent fasting that patients do is called time-restricted eating. I'm going to eat between noon and 7 p.m. And other will do two and five. In other words, I'm going to reduce my calories two days a week to 500 calories and then eat modestly on the other five days. That's two and five. So There's two different kinds of ways of doing it. The whole genesis of it is actually attractive, and it's most attractive for people grazed throughout the day. Our bodies, like every animal, is really meant to have fed periods and fasting periods, right? Because that's how you mobilize your own endogenous stores, you reset insulin. It's how the body kind of works on a circadian rhythm. So, the, so circadian rhythm kind of is supposed to come in synced with the intermittent fasting. And there's a wonderful article in New England Journal a few months ago. If you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to do it. It turns out that we are best eating earlier in the morning, kind of like the Europeans do it, kind of the biggest meal in the afternoon, and you, and you eat less at night. So it would be more like eating from 7 AM to like 5 PM. That is actually harmonizes best with our body. Interestingly, as Americans, they want to do it from noon to 8 because it fits their social time. or. Patients have never eaten breakfast much in the morning. They have morning anorexia. They never ate till noon. Now they call it, I'm doing intermittent fasting. Yeah. It's like what they've done all along. They gave it a name. Um, so I, I don't advocate for it, although if somebody wants to do it, it's fine. This, the, the thing on keto diet is it's kind of the hot thing now. Um, and, and I kind of alluded to it to my, in my opening comments, is if you want to do a keto diet, which is an extremely high fat died. I mean, it's so high, it really is, it's difficult for me to even look at sometimes, it's so high in fat. The, I think the, and it does cause weight loss, it is a remarkable rapid improvement in diabetes and glucose control because you're eliminating almost all the carbohydrates and turning to fat burning and so on. Uh, the thing to ask a patient really though is what are you going to do the day after keto diet? Because I don't know anyone who is, well, in my own well. practice who has stayed on that kind of diet long term. And the problem people run into is they don't think about, what am I going to do the the day after, the month after, the year after, and the decade after? And that's why people regain their weight. So I'm kind of a lifestyle management guy. I'm more like, tell me what you're eating, and I'm going to tweak it and progress it towards a healthier and healthier diet. Just like, tell me your physical activity level, and I'm going to progress it towards a healthier lifestyle. That's kind of my slant rather than put you on this diet and then see ya. See ya right.
0: All right. Um, so you advocated um, an approach towards eating that was similar to what was around a while ago, but for the last 15 years ago or so, we've been hearing that all calories are not the same. And the question was, doesn't your body handle 100 calories of Snickers differently than 100 calories of an
1: avocado or broccoli? Um, Right. So, if you t- so there, is, there is truth to both. Mm-hmm. What I said is basically, it is true. It's a law of thermodynamics. And if you put someone in a metabolic ward and you clamp their calories, I could tell you they're going to lose weight because that's just the law of how our bodies work. Mm-hmm. So, that's the truth of that. The truth of the all calories are not the same is that body handles those calories metabolically differently. Mm-hmm. So, some, even if you, so if you take a, calorie level of, of ultra-fine foods, you're metabolically going to look very differently, right? You're going to, your insulin is going to be uh, stressed, your sugar is going to be higher, you're probably going to end up with a fatty liver disease, so metabolically, you're actually going to start gaining weight more, and some of the studies that just came out recently by Kevin Hall says you're going to probably end up weighing more, too, whether it's the enticement of the food, uh, it's harder to stop eating it, you're le- less satiated, and so forth. So so there's truth to both of them. I don't want to confuse you, but when you're working with patients, you, you, you want to focus on calories because that is the governing uh, point of, what, of how body weight is regulated. Then, or at the same time, look at what I call the macronutrient composition of what makes up those calories. Clearly, I would never tell anyone, I want you a 1,200-calorie diet, I don't care what you eat. Mm-hmm. Twinkies, white bread, I don't care. I would never say that. But the governing principle is still calorie control of a healthy mix and a healthy pattern of food. That's Again, I want to, I want to make sure you go home and not get caught in the weeds of this mm-hmm. stuff because patients need to have general recommendations. And if you have someone who's really involved, you can get into the nuance of all this. But don't get caught up on, oh, calorie's not a calorie. And you gotta, it, it gets too confusing for patients. Uh, Great. Um, what's the
0: role of the microbiome? Uh, how has it changed uh, based upon how we've been eating?
1: So that is a fascinating question. I don't have the total answer. I mean, I'm a student of w- watching the uh, literature evolve like many of you are. I'm just fascinated by it, particularly the animal models that you can do a microbiome transfer right into an animal that is, has, that's germ-free and that animal can actually develop obesity if the microbiome tr- uh, transfusion is from an obese human even into a rat and the rat gets heavy. So, What is actually going on there is fascinating, it's the, it's the, it's the bacteria itself, it's that mucosal interface and the metabolic signaling that goes on there. So I don't, I don't have the answer other than I'm a believer that it's a, a fascinating area to stay involved in. I will end this short uh, review though <laughs> with it is, uh, in my opinion, way premature to tell your patients to take a probiotic for their weight in order to populate their health with a healthier uh, bacterial flora. We have no data whatsoever that I'm aware of that you can change the flora enough by taking a probiotic to help that individual lose weight. We may be there one day, but we're not. Now probiotics are fine for bowel health and immune health. I don't know of anything that causes them to lose weight, so you may use it for another reason. Uh, so, so, the bottom line is really stay tuned. It's a fascinating area, and I'm as a student of it and watching it. Sure. Um, you, you, demp- you, you showed the
0: Wadden study from the Archives of Internal Medicine that showed there was lifestyle change, lifestyle medication, lifestyle medication, and meal replacement. What, uh, what, what? Sh- if we, it, you, there are not really great centers in most parts of the country what kind of meal replacements would you
1: recommend? Right. So when I say meal replacement, the definition of meal replacements are, but I I can't see anyone over there. I'm just noticing. I'm sorry. Um, Oh, they could see me on the screen. They can see you on the screen. Okay, fine. I just can't see them. Um, So meal replacements is the umbrella term for bars, shakes, and frozen entrees. It replaces a meal. It's not a snack. It replaces a meal. So let me give you examples. Um, And again, I have no stock in any of these. A meal bar, right, could be a builder bar, Cliff bar, you know, any high protein bar like that. A meal shake, a replacement shake, could be Atkins, it could be um, um, uh, Slim Fast, it could be um, uh, other high protein shakes, which I, Premier protein, those types of things. And then frozen entrees, you have to look at the sodium, absolutely. But the frozen entrees would be things like lean cuisine, healthy choice, smart pockets, those types of things. Some patients don't want anything that's pre-prepared, comes in a box, came in a label. That's fine. I don't talk them into it. But there's very strong data that if you replace one meal a day that's something that's calorie controlled, like a bar shaker frozen entree, and have a, have a fruit with it, as an example, patients tend to lose more weight. Why? Because it's less calories. That's how it works. Yep. Um, uh, The dieticians by us really like the
0: high-protein zone perfect bars and say, if you can replace one or two meals a day with that, have a normal dinner, keep active, it works. We're going to run out of time, so I won't get to all the questions, but the the recurring question towards the second half of this is, tell us your sequence for medication prescribing um, because people really... Um, how many of you feel comfortable prescribing a medication for weight loss right now? That's what I, uh, it may be better than I thought, uh, but I, I think a fair number of people would love to hear how you approach a patient okay. who's, who's willing to exercise, right. change their diet,
1: and now you're right. going to add something. So um, we do not have a standard of care in obesity yet like we would for diabetes. Diabetes is a good example, right? up. It's typically starting with metformin, and all that's starting to be challenged now because of GLP-1s and the SGLT-2 inhibitors. But there's kind of a sequence in diabetes of where we start and where we go and how do we add combinations. That does not exist in obesity. It's a newer field. We don't have as many medications. So we we don't have a guideline to say start with drug A if that isn't effective, add drug B or replace it with drug B. So it's a little more... um, takes a little bit more thinking, really, on your part uh, about what medication to use. So the the things you're thinking about in your mind is, is there a contraindication to using a drug? We talked about Phentermine already, right? So uh, other ones would be a GLP-1, history of pancreatitis or something like that. Um, You want to think about uh, drug-drug interactions, things that you don't want to combine together, like two stimulants or two serotonergic agents that may be working together. Um, You want to think about um, uh, uh, cost and coverage, which is very unique to obesity care, unfortunately. And every conversation about drugs, unfortunately, is you need to know your coverage or you need to know what you can potentially pay for. So those are the things that go in my mind when I decide upon a medication. The slide I had up there, which I had, all the phase three trials back to back, and they all have placebo, That's a slide that I made up or Scott Gahan did and I borrowed it from him. There have been no head-to-head trials of any of these drugs like you would expect in other disease states. So uh, we don't know which drug outperforms another because there's no head-to-head. However, having said that, the two drugs that I use most commonly because they have the greatest efficacy or effectiveness in their trials uh, is phentamine topiramate and Those are that's just a personal personal thing. They have the greatest response rate uh, and tolerability. The other ones kind of are 50-50. If, if they respond, it's great. Uh, so it really comes up to your own art of medicine, but that's what I personally do. The other thing I want to mention to you is that if someone does not respond to drug A, I will then try drug B. We have no data whatsoever that one has a non-responsiveness to all these drugs. They all have different mechanisms of action, like, like an anti the same thing, right? You try a different drug. It's the same thing with obesity. The other thing I want to mention is that there are no trials where you use two drugs at the same time. So if you are someone who's using phentermetopiramate and then you want to add liraglutide, you can do it, but there are no trials whatsoever to support you to do that. So, I just want you to be aware of that. That is the way our field should be going because we treat every other disease with multiple drugs. Right. Right. We don't do monotherapy. Obesity is a new field, and and the pharmaceutical industry is new, and they're not mature enough yet to start looking at combinations. Twenty years from now, I think we will have data to combine treatment. Many of us, like myself, will combine treatment because I, I think of it as a chronic disease and we combine drugs of different mechanisms. I just want you to know that we don't have that data uh, yet, so just be aware of what you're doing.
0: Um, last drug question for a few minutes. L- locaserin, there was a new cancer warning? Yes. Can uh, okay, you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I don't know where that came from. Um, Uh, Lorcaserin's cardiovascular outcome trial came out in the New England Journal about two years ago, Um, and and, and it showed an uh, equivalent outcome for the cardiovascular outcome. So no no worsening, no better with Lorcaserin, so it's kind of a wash, doesn't cause harm, but it's not reducing cardiovascular events. In that that trial, there was a table on on cancer risks over five years. None of them crossed the confidence interval. In other words, none of them were statistically significant. And then a warning came out that uh, there may be a risk. I have no idea where that data comes from Mm -hmm. because it said it came out of the Camellia trial, which is what that trial is. I went back to New England Journal article, and it's not there. So I don't have the answer for you other than the company may have been following these folks up longer maybe, and there was an I'm, I'm guessing, Maybe some and some balance in some cancer, when you know what cancers, that they felt compelled to make an announcement, but all the folks in my area, and I mean, this is my area specialty, none of us have any information on where this is even coming from. So I, I don't know. Um,
0: I, I, this is a fairly common scenario. Patients come in, you they agree, they change their diet, they start exercising, they they don't lose weight. Or... They, they've been, they've lost some weight and they get to this plateau and they get stuck. Is there some compensatory mechanism going on there that, that we need to think about trying to overcome when they reach those points? Yes.
1: Yeah, so there's a very well-defined metabolic adaptation that goes on. Many, other art, many articles have now covered this, so it's an important concept for you to know. It, as any of us lose weight, at some point a metabolic compensation uh, takes effect. It's called starvation compensation in which you, you start having a reduction in energy expenditure. Uh, of course, you're eating less uh, and there's less of you, so you don't need as many calories. But your energy expenditure goes down and also the efficiency of your muscles goes up. So the activities you do in daily movement, you're more efficient. You don't burn as many calories doing it. It's kind of metabolic adaptation and there's gut hormone adaptation that goes on as well and you're hungrier at the same time. So that is a biologic change that goes on. It's important for patients to know that. It's not their fault. It's not that what they're doing is not working anymore. It's your body starting to adapt. Okay, so so that's one thing. Then what do you do about it? You can't really reduce calories anymore because they're too hungry and they're already at a low level. The only thing available at that point from a lifestyle point of view is to increase physical activity, start resistance training, increase the variety of physical activity. Because what you're directly treating is the metabolic efficiency of muscles that has been now shown to go on. So I will tell patients to become, if they've never lifted weight, start doing weight training. If their mode of exercise is running, I want them to start doing things like elliptical or stepper or rower or bike because you use different muscle groups. So you start activating different muscle groups. And in some cases, medication, because it deals with the hunger that goes on at that point. So it's not, you don't so the bottom line, you don't want to throw your hands up and saying work harder, eat less, that's the worst thing you can do. You want to have them understand what's going on and then give them different ways of dealing with that weight plateau, mostly physical activity, variety of physical activity, uh, acceptance, which is what would life be like if you don't lose another 20 pounds, Mm -hmm. it's called acceptance-based therapy, you know, how do you do that, uh, and then potentially medication which deals with the hunger effects.
0: All right. Just last question. Um, you mentioned about tracking apps, Fit Day, and so forth. What do you think of Noom and Weight Watchers? These are fairly expensive investments for patients, certainly far cheaper than picking up an, uh, an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 right. agonist. Um, thoughts? Right. Beneficial? So
1: I, I think both of them are potentially useful for for as uh, resources for patients to use that you can't or don't have the ability or don't have the time to provide yourself, Noom uh, does cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, I already put that on there. So it's funny, they advertise. We do this new thing called cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been around for, you know, 40 years. But the advantage in Noom is that it's right on their smartphone, they're getting getting, uh, reinforcement and uh, recommendations to use all these CBT techniques like tracking and stimulus control right in their smartphone. So if someone wants that daily touch point, it's really helpful for them. I've had patients who found it annoying, so it has to be the right person. WW, it's called WW now, not Weight yeah, Watchers. Not if you got the memo. Yeah, so Dunkin' Donuts is just Dunkin' exactly. now. Exactly. WW uh, you know has different have different approaches, either you tr- either a lot of points or more free foods. It's either in their studios called studios now or through their app. Uh, so it's multiple opportunities for them to have a lifestyle management with with support, reinforcement, accountability. So, I, you know, I, I, I would say both of those approaches you mentioned are very reasonable depending upon the person.
0: Uh, thank you so much. This was an awesome session. Great. It's a long session for you as yeah, well. Thank you Thank all.
1: you all. We'll see you in the morning.